Well, good morning, all. Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. <laughs> Welcome to Soul Sanctuary if you're visiting. No perfect people allowed, yeah? Glad that you're all here. And uh, today I want to encourage you to pull out a pen and paper, pull out your phones, pull out the notes, and get ready to go. I'm doing a little something different as uh, we're going to go on a ride. And you're going to go through the entire Old Testament today. So our interpreter is very happy <laughs> with the, uh, the names and everything else that goes with it. And we want to talk about the Bible Jesus read. And there's a reason for my madness, and we'll get to it at the end. So before we go any further, can we have those doors closed? Thanks, Rick. Let's just pray. Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for the time that we can just come together and celebrate and to uh, just be a part of this a global operation called the church. And so we pray for other gatherings that are taking place on the other side of the world and even just here in the city of Winnipeg. And we ask that you would, your spirit would speak through pastors and teachers and leaders and uh, educators and that uh, uh, your word would go out in mass to the world around that needs to hear the message of hope. And so God, this morning we just commit to you and ask that you would uh, move in our hearts and uh, create a hunger for a knowledge of who you are, create uh, in us a hunger of understanding and create us a hunger of, of knowing your scriptures. And we ask this in your name. Amen. There's a theologian by the name of uh, Gleason Archer, and he said, how can Christian pastors hope to feed their flock on a well-balanced spiritual diet if they completely neglect the 39 books of the Holy Scripture on which Jesus and the New Testament authors receive their own spiritual nourishment. Very interesting uh, quote, and uh, there was a huge gathering that took place, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and it was there where Jesus confidently told all those people who were hearing him speak that heaven and earth would pass away before scripture failed. And, uh, you know, you kind of go, well, you know, that was Jesus. He really knew his Bible. He, he really knew what he was talking about. You know, he, he obviously had the scriptures that he could trust. He, he knew what was going on. And, and Jesus didn't fear that there were any historical, moral, or theological, or scientific inaccuracies in his scriptures. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount, um, or some of these sermons where Jesus is talking, especially in Matthew uh, 5, 17 and 19, Jesus summed it up and he said it like this. He said, do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. So whoever there breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches men sh so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The importance of the primaries of the scriptures. What were the scriptures that Jesus read? Um, have you ever wondered what kind of Bible Jesus had, I think, if anything else? Uh, uh, we know that he read the scriptures. We see that written throughout the Gospels. We also know that the early church didn't have what we now call the New Testament in their hands. That didn't happen until later on. History tells us that way back in, uh, you know, 280, uh, 283, yeah, 283 to 246, before Christ, the, before the common era there, the Greek king 
of Egypt. His name was uh, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, really nice, easy name. He commissioned approximately 70 Jewish scholars, uh, guys who were fluent in what we would call uh, biblical Hebrew, because the biblical Hebrew is a little bit different than our, our modern-day Hebrew, but these were fluent scholars, and he commissioned them to translate the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, into Greek. And, uh, and he wanted to do that because he wanted to have a copy of the Torah in Greek in the library of Alexandria. And after that, um, over the next couple centuries, what took place was more and more uh, copies of the Old Testament were then being translated. And so this original translation of, from the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek, see, I've told you, I'm, I'm teaching you guys here, uh, is called the Septuagint. I have my own copy of the Septuagint. Now, this is from the Greek to the English. So this is the Old Testament uh, based on certain manuscripts. And... Uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's actually, this is the stuff that gets me going. Uh, so when you show up on a Sunday and go, oh, pastor, you know, oh, that was a meaty sermon. Actually, no, what I've given you is pablum, all right, because I've already worked it through. I've already spent time on it. You're just getting the, the simple stuff. And, and so this is the, the scripture. There's the Septuagint was what was out there. So two centuries before Jesus, um, people started reading the Hebrew script. Uh, uh, scriptures in Greek. Uh, and the reason why is because many Jews of that day did not understand the Hebrew, could not even read the Hebrew language because their ancestors centuries before were taken out of Israel. And so generation after generation lost the ability to read the scriptures in Hebrew and all of a sudden things started happening so that they could. So many of the Jews in Jesus' day used the Septuagint as their Bible. Now, Quite naturally, the early Christians also took the Septuagint and would use that as their Bible for their, their meetings and their personal readings as well. And so many of the New Testament apostles, when they're writing their letters, they would quote, um, you know, when we read in the Gospels and the Epistles, they would quote from the Greek, from the Septuagint. Jesus and the apostles, they studied, they would have memorized, uh, they would have used, quoted, read from the Bible of their day, the Septuagint. Now, Matthew... Uh, wrote primarily to convince a uh, Jewish audience and that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the promised Messiah. And uh, when we look at Matthew, we see that his, his uh, scriptures were primarily, when he was quoting the Old Testament, was primarily quoting from the Hebrew scriptures. But yet when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, especially in Matthew, he, uh, um, he used the Hebrew text only about 10% of the time. And as we study how Jesus had quoted different scriptures, he used the Greek Septuagint translation, and there's also another one called the Aramaic uh, Targums, not that I'm going to waste all this time with you, but there was, Jesus used numerous aspects of scripture. Now, amazingly, Jesus and Paul used the Septuagint as their primary Bible. This translation it's just kind of like the Bible that you and I hold in our hands all the time. It's not the original Old Testament Hebrew, but it's a translation of the Hebrew into Greek, or as we have, from the Hebrew into English. It's a translation. I love the scriptures. 
And, and again, part of teaching the scriptures is getting into it and creating this concept of being able to pull other people into the story. Because the scriptures have great stories. I had a friend of mine told me that his kid was reading a book that involved evil spirits, demons, good, you know, good versus evil. And, and the, the kid went to a Christian school and the teachers at the Christian school banned the book. And I asked, was it the Bible? You know? You know, I've heard from people in my conversations growing up with uh, and people at, um, when I worked other jobs, that they felt that the Bible was written by a bunch of guys, old guys, you know, high on Middle Eastern weed or something. You know, they felt that scripture, you know, was a myth, it was a fairy tale, it was a, it was a book about a bunch of characters that really didn't reflect the real world. This is what you're reading, Jerry, you're out of your mind. And when I hear this, I know that they haven't done any studying, I know that they haven't done any research, I know that they haven't even read it. And so you start in Genesis, and I look at the stories in Genesis and, and the reflection of what it is. And you've got to remember, Jesus is reading this stuff too. And we see that Cain is, able, is jealous of Abel, and he kills him. And you look in Genesis, and Lamech, he, he's the guy who, who introduces polygamy into the world. Yeah, you know, it's not some A&E television show. It's, it's here in Scripture. Noah was the most righteous man on earth in his generation. He gets hammered. After the flood, he curses his own grandson. Lot, when his home is surrounded by the residents you know, um, of Sodom, they want to come in and they want to violate these visitors, visitors that he brings into his house. Instead, Lot, what he does, he takes his daughters and says, no, you can, you can sleep with my daughters. Have sex with my daughters. Later on, you know, his daughters get him drunk and, and get impregnated by Lot. And you've got to think of it. Scripture says this was one of the most righteous men in Sodom. Just twist it. Abraham, he plays favorites, and, 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 and this is a very interesting aspect that talks about basically how favoritism destroys families. He plays favorites between his sons Isaac and Ishmael, and they have issues, and Isaac plays favorites between his son, because he learned it from his dad, uh, his sons Jacob and Esau, and they hate each other for 20 years, and then Jacob, he plays favorites between Joseph and his other 11 brothers, and they all want to kill Joseph, but instead, right, they sell him as a, a slave. You do more history, and you see that as, as you're reading the scriptures, all these guys, their marriages, you know, they end in disasters, and Abraham has, has sex with his wife's servant, and then he sends her and her son off into the desert at his first wife's request. Like, it's totally family dysfunction. Isaac and Rebekah, they fight over, you know, who ends up with the blessing for their child. Jacob marries two wives, ends up with both of their maids and his, his concubines. He finds himself in the middle of a fertility contest. And Jacob's firstborn, his name is Reuben, he sleeps with his father's concubine. You know, this, this is crazy stuff. Another son, Judah, sleeps with his daughter-in-law, and then she disguises herself as a prostitute, and she only does this because she's childless. And, you know, since her, her, her first two husbands, both who were sons of Judah, were, were, were killed. Well, actually, they're so wicked that God killed them both. But uh, Judah, then he sort of reneges on his cultural obligation to her, which was basically to give her a child. And all of this and more is found in just Genesis. Why? So there, you know, again, you got to remember that Jesus knows the scriptures. And just as this cast of characters that God chooses to, to work with, everyone has these habits that they can't control, these past deeds that they can't undo, right? These flaws that they can't c 
correct. And we are all sort of like sheep. And we can include ourselves when we see these stories written. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to take a step back. And I want to look at the big picture of the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, the Bible that Jesus used, the Bible that the early Christians used. So, you know, we, you're so used to me talking out of the New Testament. We're going to take a look at the themes here, the plots. And, and, and have you taken the time to look at the Old Testament and see the themes and the plots and how they apply to us today? Now, I'm not going to tell you who wrote what. I'm not going to give you the... You can find all the historical details, all that on your own. Just use the Google, all right? That will help you somewhat. Um, rather, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to look very quickly at the themes and ask, you know, how do, these puzzle, how do these pieces of the puzzle fit together? So most Christians know that the Old Testament is important. We do. But when it comes to putting the details together, we really can't figure that out. Um, you know, there's creation, there's a flood, there's a boat, there's a big fish, there's a whole lot of begats. We know what the begats are all about, you know. Um, well, maybe we don't. Maybe we don't know what begats are, right? What are begats anyways? There's, there's lots of old, 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 old people, right? When we look at scripture, there's crazy prophets doing crazy things, is there not? There's, there's crazy kings, there's cool kings, there's, there's even a short guy fighting a big guy. You know, these are all stories we know. There's, there's this thing called the wilderness. There are names that I can't even pronounce on a good day. There's concubines. And there's freaky visions, right? And, and then Jesus comes, and, and then things get somewhat normal. Have you ever began to read the Old Testament and began to figure out very quickly that something's wrong? And this is what Jesus is reading. And sure, you know, Genesis is the obvious choice to, to begin, right? Because when we open up our Bible, we see Genesis there, and... and uh, it appears, and that's what we read, and we reread it, and we don't really, doesn't quite make sense. But um, did you know that the Bible's not in chronological order? Now, some of you know this, some of you don't. And if you really want to start with the oldest book, if you want to start chronologically in reading your Bible, if you really want to start with the oldest book, well, then you need to start with the book of Job. Now, the English Old Testament is separated into four sections, according to emphasis, rather than time sequence. Okay? So our Bible is set out according to emphasis, rather than time sequence. And the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, okay, uh, it stands as the foundation of all the other Old Testament books. Now, the next section we have is the 12 historical books, and they chronically... Uh, chronologically follow the law, but they're grouped together because of their common purpose. There's a purpose here. And then we have five poetical books, which were mostly written during the time of 2 Samuel by King David and Solomon and possibly a couple of other guys. And then we have these things called the prophetical books. And they're even separated into two very simple categories. But for my purpose today, a chronological perspective of the Old Testament, are you with me, is where we're going to go. And every Christian needs to have somewhat of a good understanding of the Old Testament in general. Why? Because being a Christian is about engaging our mind and our hearts more and more. And not shutting them off or letting somebody else think for you. So, 
Many believers, they, they know that the Old Testament is important, but we get stuck. We just don't know how to approach it. So today, I want to help you put all these pieces together and sort of give you a framework in order for you to handle that all out and so that you have a map that you can navigate with through the Old Testament. Hence, I'm asking you to take notes because the Old Testament matters. It matters a whole lot. Last week, I shared with you Romans 15.4 that tells us that the past was written for each of us, so, so that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and encouragement of scriptures, what? That we might have hope. Hope. So the past was written so that we might have hope. So Jesus, when he's reading the scriptures, reads it. Why? He becomes the deliverer of hope. Same idea is emphasized in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And so the Old Testament is meant to serve as a source of hope and encouragement, a, a source of inspiration, but also a source of warning, which I bet you probably never even thought about that part. And so Jesus read that. Jesus knew that. Jesus began to practice that. And we're supposed to look at these stories. We're supposed to find lessons in the Old Testament for us today. What are the lessons? But it can be hard. It does. It is hard. So take out your notes and, and let's, let's get into a quick schooling. So how does God kick off the old T? He, he starts with a bang, obviously. Let there be light. Boom. All right. But chronically, chronologically, again, the, the book of Job um, starts things off for us because we're going chronologically. Are you with me? And as considered by many scholars to be our oldest text, it is uh, believed that it was written before Genesis was. And so for the sake of argument, I'm going to place it at the beginning. Here is a book that wrestles with the age-old question, why do people suffer if God is a God of love and mercy? How many of us hear that almost every day when we talk to people? It clearly teaches the sovereignty of God and, and the need for, for men to acknowledge these things. And it teaches that God is worthy of love apart from the blessings that he gives. And that God may permit suffering as a means of purifying and strengthening the soul and godliness. And, and that God's thoughts and ways are moved by considerations that are just too vast for our puny mind of, to even comprehend. And even though man is unable to see the issues of life with the, the breath of the vision of the almighty God. Nevertheless, God really knows what's best for his own glory and ultimately for our own good. This is what Job is all about. And a further purpose of Job is to demonstrate the conflict of the ages between God and Satan and, and to show the relationship of suffering to this conflict. And in the end, it demonstrates the truth of Romans 8.28 that ultimately all things work together for good. So Job, Genesis is interesting. See, not only does... Genesis, Genesis means the beginning. When it's the book of beginnings. And you see that when you open it up and you begin it. Because Genesis becomes this point of historical reference from which all other subsequent revelation is, is, is revealed to us. In Genesis, all major themes of the Bible have their origin. 
You know, it's a book of many beginnings. We see it at the beginning of the universe, of, of man, of woman, of human sin, of the fall of our race, the, the beginning of God's promises of salvation, the beginning of the nation of Israel as a chosen people of God because of God's special purpose for them as the, the channel for the Messiah, the Savior, for Jesus. Can you imagine reading the Bible as Jesus did and, and he could see things coming together? That he's saying, hey, speaking of me, Exodus is another one. The name means leaving. The book tells how God uses Moses to, to help the Hebrew people leave behind their, their terrible lives as slaves in Egypt. And God made a covenant with these people and that if they would they'd simply just obey the laws that God gave them, that God would show up and, and use these special people. In special ways. And God showed his people that he was not only more powerful than the Egyptian Pharaoh, but he was the sovereign Lord. He was the, the God of redemption and revelation. And so God calls this man named Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And this conflict happened between, you know, one of the greatest civilizations of the, on the planet at that time and a shepherd who's guilty of murder, but had God on his side. Interesting, Moses, a broken person, yeah? And what happens is that we read the book of Genesis and we see that the people are set free just as God has promised. You go into a book like Leviticus right afterwards, it's a book of laws and instructions, and I think for many of us, we don't even want to open it up, but it was these laws and instructions that God gives the Hebrew people so that they would know how to live right, that they would know how to worship, and that they would know how to walk with God. And the theme throughout Leviticus is interesting. It's a theme of holiness and how a holy God can be approached on the basis of sacrifice. You know, through the mediation of a priest, the, the, the importance of the priesthood at that time. And this, was, this book is a life lesson in itself. That when we sin, that there has to be a sacrifice, that there must be blood. And that the sacrifice was to teach a lesson that sin kills Sin destroys life, and they saw it acted out. When you think about it, they saw it acted out every time they went to temple. Because they had to kill an animal. Imagine every time you sinned, that your parents would, you know, kill your puppy or your cat. Well, it was their little sheep, you know, that's what took place. You know, but that would drive home the picture uh, and the seriousness of sins in a very unique way. And that's what Leviticus is trying to communicate to its reader. And there's a whole, whole lot more because we see Jesus throughout Leviticus. Numbers tells about the events that happened during the, of the Hebrew people, of their travels, and it gives us instructions uh, about worshiping God and celebrating special holidays. And the, the names come from the two lists that number the people before and after their trip. And it, it teaches us that while life does have its wilderness experiences, right? That God's people don't have to stay in those conditions. Again, there's hope. Deuteronomy, which means second law. Just before Moses died, he gathers together the Hebrew people and he told them everything that happened since they left Egypt 40 years ago. He repeated over and over again, you know, that, that God loved them and he took care of them along the way. And Moses also re reviewed the laws and the instructions that, that God had given them. But the theme and the purpose of the book was to, to warn people. Warn people, watch yourself and don't forget. Watch yourself and don't forget. And so just before entering the promised land, it was necessary that they were reminded all about what God had already done for the 40 years earlier. 
and how about God's holy law, which was so vital for their ability to remain in the land, to function as God's holy nation and as a kingdom of priests to all the other nations, that they were God's chosen. And the, the, the purpose of the Israelites was to point others to God. And then we come into the book of Joshua, and Joshua was Moses' assistant. And after Moses died, Joshua takes place. He takes it over, and he becomes the leader of the Hebrew people, and he takes them across the Jordan River. It was almost like you know, a reenactment earlier, 40 years earlier, and he takes them into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And this book begins to describe all the victories of, of the people as they settled into the new life in the, in the promised land. And it shows God's faithfulness, isn't that beautiful, to his, his promises, doing for his, Israel exactly what he had promised. But it also shows how the Israelites strayed, how they fell away, how they got hard hearts again. And like the different aspects of the, you know, they began to worship um, uh, other things that they got from other cultures and they had temple prostitutes and they began to eat certain foods that were outlawed by God and they began to uh, allow their morals to, to drop and the Israelites were slipping away from worshiping God and it's interesting, we see because of that that God then allows other nations to come and conquer the people. And then we have Judges and Ruth. And they're sort of looped together. And Judges tells us about several judges or uh, what we would call special leaders and, and how they helped Israel to, to break free from their enemies. And the contrast between the moods of Joshua and Judges, when you read it, is actually very striking because Israel goes from the thrill of victory down to the agony of defeat, you know, from freedom all of a sudden to oppression and from, from advancement and moving forward to, to resignation. And it records the history of the seven cycles of decline and oppression and then calling out to God and, and then God's deliverance coming through. So Judges draws our attention to the fact that obedience brings blessing. That better be God. I'm just saying. I'm not sure if he uses Rogers or MTS, but I'm... But Judges also outlines the fact that disobedience results in God's discipline. And Judges reminds us that when people turn to God and they cry out to him and they repent, that God, who is long-suffering, in other words, he's very patient and is gracious, he responds in deliverance, the hope. Ruth finds itself in the same time as Judges. It tells about the love of a young woman named Ruth. The love she had for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And, and Ruth, le Ruth left behind her own country and to start a new life in, in Naomi's country. And once there, Ruth found a new husband and, and had a son. And her story is a story of loyalty, a story of purity and love in a day when it was anarchy and self, uh, selfishness and depravity. And that was a general rule. And Ruth serves as a positive picture of faith and obedience in the midst of apostasy, of turning away from God. And her story alone looks as faith brings blessing. It's a beautiful picture. And she's an important link in the ancestry of King David, as mentioned, and found in the line of Jesus. You know, Jesus was reading his own genealogy, his own story. And so historically, God's people were 
getting frustrated with the cycle that they found themselves. And we see this in the scriptures. And uh, they analyze a, the, the situation and then they come to a wrong conclusion. And they felt that, you know, it wasn't maybe their, their sinfulness that was a problem. They, 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 they felt that they didn't have a king. And so they wanted a king, and they said to God, God, give us a king. And God says, look, you don't need a king, you have me. But they wanted a king, and so God does for them, interesting enough, what he often does for us, he gives us what we want. Think about that. And they got a king. They got this guy named Saul. And Saul's a little bit flawed, just, just a wee bit off. So 1 Samuel then is named after the last judge of Israel. It tells us about the first kings in Israel. And Saul's the first king of Israel, but he disobeys God. So they want this king, but the guy that they pick, God says, you don't need one, but he gives them one, and he disobeys God. And he's rejected. And then God chose this young shepherd boy by the name of David and to take Saul's place. And one of the key purposes of the book of 1 Samuel, which is interesting, is to record the divine origin of King David's dynasty. And not only is he a great fighter, he's a romantic poem writer. You know, to this day, you know, we recite 3,000-year-old poems. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? He was the man. He was rich. He had a heart after God. The ladies liked him. All the guys were jealous. Because David also could dance in public. I think that was probably the biggest reason why. <laughs> Second Samuel was originally part of First Samuel. And this book describes the, the rule of King David and the covenant God made with him. And God promised that one of David's descendants would always rule over Israel. And much of this book tells how David struggled to keep control of his kingdom. And again, the brokenness that came with him was to keep control of his family. And in typical fashion of the Bible, which very candidly tells the story of its leaders with its warts and everything else. So basically, this book portrays the good, the bad, the ugly in the life of King David, who was very flawed like you and me. And during this time, a collection of about 150 prayers or songs to God are written. They're called the Psalms. And the Psalms were used long ago by the people of Israel to worship God in the temples and in homes. And the Psalms are, you know, they're all different and they, they reflect several human emotions from joy to sadness, from comfort to fear, from hope to despair. And, you know, the Psalms provide us with a, a message of hope and comfort through the common theme of worship. And they are, in essence, the, the Psalms become an antidote to fear in our lives. You know, and to complaining. And, and, and many times, if you, you've been a Christian for a while and you find yourself in one of those dark places, where do we go? We go to the Psalms. Because they're a personal response to the work of God in people's lives. And they're this expression of worship, they're this expression of faith and of the spiritual life of not just individuals, but all of Israel. And in the Psalms, we have a mirror of the heart of God, God's people recording the simple, universal human experience of man in, in light of God's person and promises and plans and presence, because he's there. 
I often get, is it, I get emails or other things. Hey, is it okay for me like, to be mad at God and to yell at God and to scream at God? And I just go read the Psalms. You're not the only one. And then you have Proverbs, which is a collection of wise sayings and, and good advice how to ri- live a right way to, and to obey God. And, and I know we're sort of stuck, you know, we're in limbo with our own walk through the book of Proverbs. We will be getting there. Just be patient with us. But there are many common sense lessons about life written by these wise teachers and rulers. And the theme and the purpose of the book is for living through special instructions on every conceivable issue of life. That's what the Proverbs are all about. You know, uh, folly, you know, stupidness, sin, goodness, wealth, poverty, the tongue, pride, humility, justice, family, parents, children, discipline, vengeance, strife, gluttony, my favorite, love, laziness, friends, life, death. It's all in that book. And no book is more practical in terms of wisdom for daily living than the book of Proverbs. And the fundamental theme Again, reiterated, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Ecclesiastes, interesting enough, can be translated as the preacher. And the book is filled of his thoughts about life and hard times and the joy of being young and being obedient to God. And basically, the the basic theme is the futility of life apart from God. The Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, is, these are poems that were first spoken between two people who were deeply in love, a, a, a love song filled with metaphors and imagery designed to portray God's view of love and marriage, the beauty of physical love between a man and a woman, it, and in my opinion, it's a marriage manual. And then we have First Chronicles and First Kings and then Second Kings, along with Isaiah, and, and the book of First and Second Chronicles repeat much of Israel's history told in First and Second Kings, but they, they do it from a different point of view. First Chronicles parallels First and Second Samuel. You know, it tells how David, you know, chose Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. Then this book also taught that the, the past was filled with lessons for the present. And they had apostasy and idolatry and intermarriage with Gentiles and the lack of unity were reasons for, for their ruin. And that's all documented. First Kings continues the history of Israel by telling about the rule of wise King Solomon and the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And after Solomon died, the Israel divided into two separate kingdoms. You had the, the northern kingdom, which was called uh, Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And this book describes the division and the history between both kingdoms. And the central theme was to show how disobedience led to the disruption of the kingdom. That sin breaks stuff up. Sin breaks up unity. And the welfare of the nation depended on the faithfulness of its leadership, interesting enough. And also of the people to the covenants of God. And they're loyal to, the, to that. Second Kings, originally part of First Kings. Again, broken down for us. It continues with the history of the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And eventually both kingdoms are defeated by foreign nations, right? 
and their people are taken away as prisoners, where? To live in other countries. We call it the exile. And in both kingdoms, the prophets continue to warn that, that God would punish them unless they repented. And so God would be sending these prophets. We'll get to them fairly shortly. And 2 Kings teaches that willful sin in a nation. This is interesting. In a nation has a woeful end, which makes me always a little concerned about Canada. And so in First and Second Samuel, a nation is born. In First Kings, it's divided. In Second Kings, it's actually then sent away. You see the pattern. And years after pleading with his people through the prophets, God's patience finally, finally turns to discipline, just like he promised. And because the both books were originally one, and First and Second Kings sh share the same theme and goal, they teach us how unfaithfulness, in other words disobedience to God's law and rebellion must lead to God's discipline. And in that process, it overthrew the monarchy. Those kingdoms, remember they wanted a king? Well, it got overthrown. And those two kingdoms, the, the northern Israel and southern Judah, they, they collapsed because of the, the future of the kings to rule righteously and to listen to God's truth. But it's during this time this famous prophet shows up. His name is Isaiah. And he warns the people that they need to obey God. And he promised them that uh, uh, he talks about God's forgiveness. And Isaiah encouraged the people to worship only God. And Isaiah's name provides the theme of the book. It's the salvation of Yahweh. The salvation of God. Is, it, this is most evident by the, the, the fact that the term salvation occurs some 26 times in Isaiah. But only 7 times in all the other prophets combined. This is what Isaiah was all about. He's all about salvation. And if you know anything about Jesus and the scriptures he quotes, he quotes a lot from Isaiah. Second Chronicles parallels First and Second Kings. It continues on with the history of, of David's kingdom. It describes the rule of, of his son Solomon. And Second Chronicles never mentions the northern kingdom of Israel or any of its kings. It only focuses on the southern kingdom, that of Judah. And it covers some of the same history, but from a different perspective and in order to emphasize certain things. And during the time of Second Chronicles, we find this the, the book of Jeremiah, another prophet. It contains the, the messages of the prophet. Who's, what is he doing? He's warning the people about God's punishment, his coming punishment. Why? For their disobedience. And Jeremiah is the one who tells these people, look, you need to be, expect to be taken away as captives to Babylon. And Jeremiah looked also, though interesting, towards a happy future for the people. And so there are two themes that are very prominent in the book of Jeremiah. The, the warnings of God's judgment against sin are prominent throughout the book, but there was also a message of hope and restoration. If the nation would genuinely repent. Then there's another book called Lamentations. Basically five poems. They're sad reflections on the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. But it also talks... In the midst of that, about God's unending love for the people of Israel. I think these are things that we need to understand. The importance of the scriptures that we have just in our, our hand. Then there's this guy named Hosea. 
And he was a prophet. He lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. He was accused of uh, uh, the people of being unfaithful to God by, by worshiping foreign gods. And he, he also said that God loved them and was ready to forgive them for being disobedient and kept sh- shouting this message. But Hosea was written to demonstrate the, the steadfastness or the unfailing love of God for Israel in spite of their continued unfaithfulness. And his story is really cool. Then you have this other guy named Joel. And he was a prophet who compared Israel's enemies to a swarm of plant-eating locusts or grasshoppers, whatever. And he warned people that these enemies would come and destroy their land if they continued to be unfaithful to God. And the theme of the book of Joel is, is if the nation will repent and return to God, God will restore his relationship with her and bless her. It's funny, though, that we take scripture out of context, and especially with the book of Joel, there was, there was an old chorus in the 80s. Maybe you, you remember this. It's called Blow the Trumpet in Zion. For the, If you grew up in the church, they rush on the cities, they run on the walls. The, the people remember this? Okay. Okay, you know what that song is? It's, hey, God, bring judgment on us. And people were singing it in church because they took it from scripture. We didn't really know what we were singing. Blow the trumpet in Zion, Zion. Yes, send the grasshoppers to destroy us. <laughs> we need to know the scriptures. We do. Amos, he was a sheep farmer. He was called to be one of God's farm, uh, prophets and farmers. And uh, he, he reminded the people of Israel that they were to be kind to everybody. Isn't that interesting? You need to be kind to everyone. Not just to people like yourselves. And Amos preached a lot about being kind, especially listened carefully to the poor and to people who were treated like slaves. And the message given to Amos was primarily one of judgment. Though it again, it ends, what? With words of hope. Obadiah. That reminds me of a song in the 70s. He was a prophet in the Israel who predicted the defeat of this nation, Edom. Now this is an interesting book. Because Edom was a nation that was south to uh, Israel's south. And Edom refused to help Israel during their time of attack. And so Obadiah spoke against this foreign country. He warned this country about God's punishment. And the theme of Obadiah is a reiteration of the truth that pride goes before the fall. And what happens to those who don't support Israel, which again, you know, depending on your theological construct, says a whole lot when we begin to look at scripture. Jonah. You know the story of the prophet who refused to follow God's direction about preaching to the people of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And, and the book clearly demonstrates that, that, that God of the Hebrews has a concern, not just for the, the Hebrews, but for the whole world. And he's sovereign over nature and of all human affairs. It also talks about the fact that God offers salvation and extends it to everyone who will repent and turn to him. And when we take a look at the book of Jonah, we see that this book alone is a reflection of us because it talks about how our prejudices can hinder us from following the will of God. Micah was a prophet who preached about the dangers of being rich and forgetting about helping the people who are poor. And he told the people about their, their, the, the need for you to and I to be fair and honest and promise them a future based on God's fairness. And Micah shows up and, and, and 
tells the people how they failed to live up to the covenant stipulations that God had made with Israel in which they were supposed to be a blessing. And by being obedient, you know, they would be even more so of a blessing. But instead, their disobedience caused a curse and eventually got them removed from the land of promise. Nahum, interesting character. He, he's uh, in, in what, uh, he's what Jonah wanted to see. Because uh, Nahum comes on the scene and he actually now uh, names God's judgment against the Assyrians. So Jonah comes in ahead of him and doesn't want to do what God wants him to do, does it anyway, the Assyrians turn to God. Nahum comes in and he now pronounces the judgment against the Assyrians. This is about 150 years later. And so the conversion of the Ninevites was in response to Jonah's preaching obviously seems to be short-lived because soon they became ruthless again and they returned to their former wicked ways and God had enough and brings in Nahum and this book then celebrates the defeat and the fall of Nineveh. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on your preference. It's a dialogue. It's very interesting. It's a dialogue and it's a conversation between God and Habakkuk and the dialogue is, is about why some people suffer and others are so unfair. Does that not sound familiar? And at the end, Habakkuk prays God for always being fair and always being powerful. And, and the book, again, is a theodicy. It's, it's a defense of God's goodness and, and power in view of the problem of evil. And so Habakkuk asks, you know, why did God permit the increasing evil in Judah to go unpunished? That's his question. You know, he asks the question, how could a holy God use sinful nations like Babylon as his source of judgment? And it's a very interesting discussion. Zephaniah. He's a prophet who warned the people of Israel about a future day when God would punish everyone who had been unfaithful to God. But he would also reward those who remained loyal. And so Zephaniah encouraged the people to remain faithful so, so that they would be blessed. And God is also a God of mercy and blessings. And, and, and so there's a strong call when we read the book of Zephaniah for repentance. And that with repentance comes a promise of blessing. And so Zephaniah then clearly divides into three sections. There's this retribution for, or judgment for sin. There's this call for repentance. And there's this promise of a future redemption or blessing. And you see the cycle? When we, when we just look very briefly, we see the same cycle. We see the same pattern over and over again. Ezekiel was a prophet who lived during the time that, you know, the people of Israel were forced to leave their homes. And they, they lived as captives in, in Babylon. And the prophet had many words of hope and promise about Israel's future, including a vision of a new temple in Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel's focus is, is on com condemnation for Israel's sin, but it's also a consolation of view of what God is going to do in the future. Again, in the future comes hope. Daniel was a man who served foreign kings. And Daniel describes his faith in God and how he remained obedient to God's law, even as a prisoner. He had visions about the future and how God's people would one day defeat their enemies. 
And the theme of Daniel is God's sovereign power as one true God who judges and destroys the rebellious world powers and will faithfully, again, deliver his covenant people according to their steadfastness and faith in him. And so Daniel's written, why? To encourage the exiled Jews, these people who are out of their land. And he reveals God's sovereign plan for Israel. And after that period of domination by the Gentile world, something was going to change. There was hope. Ezra, another one, he begins where the, the book of 2 Kings ends and with the people of Israel living as captives in Babylon and King Cyrus of Persia allowed these people to return to their homelands to rebuild their cities, their temples in Jerusalem. And Ezra demonstrates how God fulfills his promise to return. His promise that your people are going to return to the land after 70 years of exile. He now sees people coming back. The promises are being fulfilled. Esther tells the story of this Jewish girl who wins an empire-wide beauty pageant and whom King Xerxes of Persia chooses to be his king, queen. And this guy named Haman, he plotted to murder all the Jews and Queen Esther's cousin Mordecai pursues Esther and persuades her to try to save her people. You can make a difference, he says to her. Risking her own life, she appeals to the king and she what? She rescues the Jews. And although the name of God does not appear in the book, the theme and the purpose of the book is to show God's providential care of his people in their trials and in their persecutions. The shortest prophet in the Bible was Nehemiah. I got a whole bunch of them. They're all groaners. But Nehemiah was a servant in the palace of another Persian king. And Nehemiah was, was later appointed as governor of Judah who returned to Jerusalem to oversee the rebuilding of the city walls. And Nehemiah's name uh, means Yahweh consoles, Yahweh comforts. And the book continues the history of the Jews who returned from exile. Ezra and Nehemiah, these guys were contemporaries. Both men of God served, uh, however, in very different capacities. And while Ezra was a priest and was involved with more of the religious restoration uh, of, of a returning remnants, Nehemiah was this lay person. He was like one of us. And he served in a political capacity as a governor in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah was also written to show the obvious hand of God in the establishment of his people in their homeland in the years after the exile. Haggai. You know, after the Jewish people were allowed to return to Judah from their captivity in Babylon, the, the prophet Haggai encouraged them to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem so that God would bless them with success. And so he wrote to encourage and to exhort uh, the returned remnant to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And in the, propos, pro, in the process, he taught God's people to, uh, that God blesses his people when they put him first and that we should not grow weary in our service to God. And that God's promises for tomorrow become the foundation of our confidences. For today, we see it coming to fruition. Zechariah was a prophet who encouraged the people to rebuild the temple again after returning to Jerusalem. He promised them that God would help them if they remained obedient to him. And Zechariah taught the people about a future time where there would be peace. Think about it, peace for all nations. And then there was the Italian Hebrew prophet, Malachi. Now Malachi was a prophet who warned people that they would return from captivity in Babylon about carefully obeying the 
laws of God. A reminder, you guys need to obey the laws of God from way back when. And Malachi warns people about God's punishment if they choose to disobey these laws. And thus, Malachi rebuked the people for their neglect of the true worship of the Lord. And Malachi constantly called people to repentance. Do you see the rhythm of the Old Testament? You just went through the entire Old Testament on a Sunday morning. And when we take the time and we begin to understand the plots, we can make more sense of what they say. And remember, again, this is, this is what Jesus and the early Christians worked with. And not only that, we should be able to actually preach Jesus through every book in the Old Testament. And so I want to give you five things that stand out to me that make a big picture throughout the Old Testament just before you leave today. My hope, my desire, my thought, my one thing that I want you to walk out of here is a hunger for Scripture. And that you see God's plan in Scripture. This book is not just a piece of paper that has very little relevance or meaning or only means when I'm in desperate need and I go, oh God, show me something. But he's got a message that returns over and over again for us. And number one is that God is in control. That he is sovereign over the affairs of the nation and the world. He is sovereign over each individual. He is sovereign over you and me. He is the king, and it's more, more than just a metaphor. He, even nations and, and, and those who do not honor God are simply pawn in his hands. God used other nations, we see in the scriptures, to punish Israel, just as he used Israel to punish other nations. And he is in control of absolutely everything, including our life, our future. And listen, that should be reassuring. And the principle of Sabbath is probably one of the most profound expressions of trust in God's control. Because when you think about it, they were a farming community. They were told to take one day off in seven. You know, no work, just stop, trust me. Trust me and I'll take care of you. And most of us, we can't even take a step back or a break and let God take control, right? Because we're trying to be so busy, busy, busy in our lives. We're really not, in a lot, not allowing ourselves to trust God. I speak to myself at this point. God is in control. Secondly, it's huge that God keeps his promises, people. We see that throughout the Old Testament. God keeps his promises to his people. And as we grow up, we, we realize really quickly as adults, we don't keep our promises, do we? Why? Well, we don't have to. Yeah. But God never forgets. And he always keeps his promises. And he kept them with the children of Israel. And since his character never changes, God will keep his promises with us as well. And listen, God promises us hope in a troubled world and peace in a time of stress and freedom from sins that grip our lives and, and forgives or, uh, us when we have committed transgressions against us. He promises a purpose in our lives. He promises a destiny and a significance only though if we truly rely on him. And God is a promise-keeping God. And I think that that's what we need to be encouraged on, that God keeps his promises, that we can learn, learn them and rest on them. And as we learn to just serve him, that we will see God's blessing and guidance and presence 
upon us day by day. The third thing is, is that sin kills and sin brings death. And we see that again and again in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, how it's reenacted over and over again. And, and, this, and, and, and God, has, how he brings his cosmic judgment, like the plagues and the wars. And this is where the word smiting comes about. You know, there's a lot of smiting in the Old Testament. Why? Because sin kills. We have a hard time with that. We want to focus on the grace. And God acts so vigorously in the Old Testament to show us how seriously that he takes sin. And if we're wise, if we're willing to take the warnings we read and internalize it and not take for granted a holy God, I think that we become out of it way better. And it's amazing how things that we label as sin become so easy for us. Lying and deception and boasting and bitterness and the stuff that Bible la- the Bible labels as sin becomes so easy in time. And yet God calls us to be holy. We're called to be holy. And the fourth is twofold. God is the judge. I think, again, in our culture, we have a hard time understanding that. Look at God is our judge. And when we do wrong... He holds us to account. And secondly, God forgives. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God is the judge when we do wrong and he holds us to account, but the beauty of it is that God also forgives. And it kind of sounds a little contradictory for some people, but this is the one, the only part What really matters, because Jesus, who fulfills the promises of the Old Testaments that allow God to both punish and forgive, he steps in. And we see that in Isaiah 53, 4-6, where he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You know, we, we can't understand the Old Testament apart from Jesus. And without the story of Jesus coming and living a sinless life and dying on a cross on our behalf in our place, so that God could forgive the wicked, the wicketer us, right? Me and you. And then being raised from the dead, the fact that Jesus then stood in the gap for us, that he took the fall for us. Without that, the Old Testament is like this puzzle with one piece missing. And we've all gone astray, yet because of Jesus, we all have this opportunity to get a fresh start, to experience a new life with God, to experience his freedom, his hope, his peace, and his forgiveness. And that's the message. Starting Tuesday, May 17th, I'm going to be doing a school ministry class called Majoring in the Minor Prophets. My passion as, as your pastor is, is, my job is really to, to do my best to teach you. And more than just on a Sunday morning. I wanted to take the time today to do what I needed to do to hopefully can place into you some sort of hunger for Scripture. So we're going to do a thing called Majoring on the Minor Prophets. I want to invite you to come and to learn. 
Why? Because I believe that we as Christians in our Western culture are falling away from Scripture and we have no clue what we believe. We need to learn about the Scriptures. And I, I hope and I trust that after this morning, and I know it's a little bit of a different Sunday, but welcome to Seoul, that you will walk out of here with a little bit more understanding of the Bible that Jesus read. I hope that you would walk out of here with a little bit more hunger to learn who we are and what our faith is all about. Let's pray. Father, there's still a lot that confuses me, but I've, I know for me I've done a lot of wrongs, and if you're really a judge, I'm guilty, so I, I ask you to forgive me. Somehow help, help me out, Jesus, to follow you. And as we look at your scriptures, we see that there's a cycle that always ends with a hope. And God, you send your Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out and to give us hope. You come alongside us to do so. So today I invite you to come alongside us. I invite you to just create in all of us just a hunger for your scriptures, for knowledge, but not just knowledge, but for a practical application and walking hand in hand with you and making a difference in the world in which you've placed us. And we just commit this to you in your name. Amen. Stand with me in ancient time. The one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. The one receiving the blessing did likewise. Here is your blessing. It comes from Colossians chapter 3. It says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. Be blessed, and we will see you next week.